Uh, if you uh, have not been coming around, we're going through the book of Acts this semester. And right now what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and read through chapter 5, verse 11. And this is, this is a really uh, interesting uh, passage, pretty intimidating in some ways. And so let's listen uh, to God's Word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had, they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your, at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us tonight. Thank you for keeping us warm. We take it for granted. We shouldn't. I take it for granted. Um, we ask now that you would warm our hearts. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, dig out for us ears to hear Jesus. Truly, he's the one we need to hear. And so we pray that you would do this, that you would work mightily in us, that you would change us, that we wouldn't leave the same way that we came because of your Spirit's work in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, sometimes getting a uh, piece of new information is a positive experience, like finding out that there are cupcakes or donuts sort of waiting for the taking at Abba Java. Uh, sometimes you've got a negative experience, like finding out that it is mathematically impossible to get the grade that you need in your class. Uh, sometimes you find out about a great internship, and that next piece of info that they stopped taking applicants last week is not sweet news. New news is not always sweet news. These pieces of information, uh, we don't always like what is new. When I was 20, my parents 
were in the middle of a pretty nasty divorce and they would often fight in front of me and pull out you know, skeletons from each other's closet. And I found out that both of my parents had been married before they were married to each other, which is sort of shocking when it comes out as a sort of like, ah, did you know this about your mom? Did you know this about your dad? Like, oh my, this new information is jarring. And tonight, we've got some new information. If you had never heard of the church, you've never read Acts before, up until this point, it would sort of look like it was this sort of utopian society. It sort of looks like this standard that no one could measure up to. And then we get to chapter 5 and realize that the church, while unbelievably beautiful and the place where God has chosen to work to bring salvation to the world, the message of Jesus, it's also fundamentally fractured and broken. It is filled with sinners. So what I want to do tonight is I want to look at what's beautiful about this church, what's beautiful in this passage, and then I want to look at what's broken in this passage. So what's beautiful? Well, what's beautiful is what God is doing, His work. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. It's undeniable there's something really special happening in the church here. Something beautiful is at work. The Holy Spirit is real, living and active, having His way in His people. And last week we said that the world was having a love-hate relationship with this early church. They had great favor with all we read in Acts chapter 2, and yet you also have some leaders who are pretty miffed that they keep talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is sort of the linchpin of Christianity. The resurrection, the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus, which means the hope that every Christian will have the same type of resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. So their message is often hated, but their unity is attractive. People are drawn to what is happening there. Maybe you've had this experience. You see a group of friends and you think, that group of friends or that couple relates to each other in such a warm way. They, see, they seem to get each other, care for each other in ways that maybe I have an experience with my own friend group and my own relationships. I want what they have. And that's what the church was when it was created. It's what we're striving in RUF to be, a place that is by no means perfect, but a place where Jesus is changing us and the nature of our relationships, the nature of what is happening in our midst would actually be appealing and attractive to those who have, may have real issues with the resurrection, a real resurrection. The kind of barriers that we often see in society are being broken down and addressed by the gospel here. Socioeconomic disparities and tensions are being not eliminated, but greatly reduced, as racial tensions are, I'm sure personality differences. What we're finding is there is an inherent unity happening in this early church. 
Now, this isn't to say that all the tensions in the early church were gone. I mean, if you read any of the New Testament letters, you find there's lots of tensions, lots of rivalries, lots of problems that Paul or Peter, you know, or the author of Hebrews has to address. And yet God's people are decidedly unified, even if imperfectly. They're a generous people. We find a picture of what Jesus does in the midst of his people. The haves are generous with the have-nots. You actually find people who were selling property so that those who don't have any money can have food and clothing. They're taking care of those who are less fortunate, which isn't to say that it's only the wealthy that are taking care of the community. The point is that whatever gifts, whatever resources, everyone in the church is using what they have for the benefit of the whole. See, I'm tempted to read a passage like this and think it's well, just calling the rich people to take care of everybody else. But verse 32 says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number, one heart and soul. They care for each other. They understand each other as a body. The point wasn't that some super rich subgroup in this larger church is taking care of everyone. Everyone was taking inventory of the resources God had given them and how they may, might benefit the greater good. I think it's fair to say, maybe you would disagree, that college isn't the wealthiest season of your life. Anyone think college is the wealthiest season of your life? No hands? Not going to come with me on that? No, of course not. There are obvious financial ways to apply this. I mean, if you've got meal points or you know, meal plans and you, and you know that a buddy of yours or a friend of yours is waiting for a scholarship check to come in, they're not eating well, you've got meals to spare, like, yeah, maybe, maybe it'd be a good thing to swipe them a meal. That might, be help, that might be helpful. If you've got a car and gas money and you know somebody that doesn't have a car, doesn't have gas money, and you can afford to take them on a few errands, maybe that would be a way to use what you have to benefit somebody else. But there's more than financial resources in our room, isn't there? Some of you are smarter than others of you. You know who you know. <laughs> but what that means is you might sacrifice some of your study time to help somebody else understand what is easier for you. And you might think, oh, that would really sort of eat into my time. Yes, it might. It might feel like a sacrifice, but the gifts that God has given you might be of benefit to the whole. Maybe you've got more social capital than those around you, and it might mean inviting that guy who has zero self-awareness to join you for things. Or inviting the loner in your lab to lunch. If you have social capital, how might you spend that for the sake of somebody else? Even if somebody looks at you and thinks, why are they hanging out with him, with her? Everyone in this room has been uniquely gifted with resources that you can benefit somebody else by sharing. But maybe the biggest resource that we have is time. And I know you'd say, well, I'm busy and you are busy. I'm not talking necessarily study time. Maybe you need all of that or your, your class time. But what about screen time? How might you benefit somebody else with the time that 
You're embarrassed to admit how much is in front of a screen. How might some of that time benefit somebody else? In your small groups or over lunch, asking somebody what's going on in their life. Now, before we run the wrong way with this discussion, I want to make an important clarification. This is not a Christian to-do list. In other words, we're not supposed to sort of look at you know, Barnabas. We're not supposed to sort of think about these applications and merely think, well, sure, yes, I should be more united to other believers. I should share my resources. Of course, we should. But instead of being a to-do list, this is a description of what God was doing in this church. I want to highlight what we read earlier. Great grace was upon them all. In other words, when we read this and we think, ah, I know what I should do now. I should be more like that. We'll miss the point. The point isn't, look at what they did. How do I replicate it? The point is, look at what God did. This is what it looks like when God has His way with His people. The point is to look and say, huh, that's what grace does. It makes people gracious. That's what grace does. It transforms communities. It changes what people do with their resources. Look at verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, got to be a pretty encouraging guy if you get a nickname for that. A Levite, a son of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. If the application of this passage is simply, now be like Joseph, give sacrificially, we miss the point. Rather, great grace was upon them all. Here's the thing about grace. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you believe this for the first time. You can't earn grace. Grace is not something that you can ever deserve. It's simply something that God gives. God gives grace to His people. You see, part of us are tempted to think, if I do things like this guy, if I'm the good guy, if I'm the encouraging one, God's going to have to be more gracious with me. If I do this, then God's going to have to do this. But God doesn't work that way. And grace doesn't work that way. You never say, if I do fill in the blank, then grace. You always say, if grace, then fill in the blank. How does what I do, how is it motivated as a response to the great grace God has already shown me? How does what I do, how is it a response to the perfect acceptance in Jesus that God offers to be received by faith alone? Grace is not a paycheck. Right? If, you, you work for, if you work for a company and then they don't pay you, you can say, hey, you owe me. But if you, if you serve the Lord as if it was a paycheck and you don't get what you want, then you can say, you owe me. But that's not grace. That's what you earn. We never get to say to God, you owe me. I, I worked. I did this. I prayed. I, I served. No. You gave me grace and I didn't deserve it. Grace is nothing like a paycheck. So, of course, sometimes we do things and we hope God notices that He'd be gracious to us. 
But sometimes we do things and we're not really thinking, I hope God notices us. We're really hoping that other people notice us. Wow, that person really seems to have approval with others. They get glory and I want it. Maybe if I do some of the things that they do, people will look at me in the same way. So we're not supposed to look at Barnabas and say, maybe I should be like him because that's what Ananias and Sapphira do. It doesn't turn out well for them. So what's beautiful in this passage, God's work in the midst of his people, great grace upon his church. It's changing what they do and how they live. What's broken? Ananias and Sapphira's counterfeit work. This married couple, they take something that is beautiful and God-honoring it, God-honoring, and they imitate it-ish and turn it into an ugly version of what it originally was. In our old house in Birmingham, Melissa and I, we had this big mirror in our small, uh, small den. We put the mirror on the wall to make the den feel bigger, right? Standard. Except this mirror was really cheap. And so, like, if you sort of stood in front of it, and, you know, have you ever done this in front of a bad mirror, and you, like, you do this, and, like, your head sort of changes. It's like, you ever done this? I could stand from across the room and I would see like Melissa just standing there and I would look at her in the mirror and I would think, that's the ugliest woman I've ever seen in that mirror. And I could say that because that woman's not Melissa. That mirror has done something to her. That's not her. That's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They're copying, but they're not copying. It's distorted, it's twisted, it's counterfeit, it's ugly. They do the same actions, it seems. They, you know, both sell property. They both give the money to the apostles with one pretty huge caveat. Ananias and Sapphira lie about it. It appears they've, they've already agreed with each other about what they're going to give. Okay, we'll sell it for this much, and then we'll give this much. We'll give half or 60%. I don't know what they give. But we're going to tell that we gave all of it. They're mocking the beauty of God. They're mocking the grace of God in his church. And Peter smells a rat. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, tempted you to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it, not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Incidentally, just side note, free things, this passage is teaching three things. First, Satan is real, and he hates God's church. Second thing, this passage affirms the divinity of the Holy Spirit. If you're ever wondering, like, where does the Bible say that the Holy Spirit is God? This is one of those passages where Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he says, sort of to equate this, you lied to God. The Holy Spirit's God. The third thing it teaches is that there are hypocrites in the institutional church. That just because you're a member of this beautiful, God-ordained institution does not mean that all of the gospel activity that is happening is working its way into your heart. Though the institution is still good and necessary, and we love her, but simply attaching ourselves to her is not the same thing as receiving the gospel by faith alone. 
So Peter calls out Ananias. He says, Ananias, the property was yours. You didn't have to sell it in the first place. And once you sold it, the money was yours. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. And the idea isn't that the Christians sort of lived in this proto-socialist commune. They didn't hand over their bank accounts. Though, radically generous. The grace of God in Barnabas' life moved him to sell some of his property to feed the poor. What led Ananias to his deceitful imitation? John Stott says this about the couple. They wanted the credit and the prestige of sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. They want the credit and prestige of sacrificial generosity, but they don't want to sacrifice. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They're not moved by the grace of God. They're moved by the approval of others. And if they could have sort of, when they laid the the money at the apostles' feet, whatever that looked like, if they could have had one of those like ginormous checks, you know, you see it like halftime, you know, halftime shots, they would have done this, right? Like, you know, the Ananias and Sapphira funds, like, look at this. It's everything we got from the sale. We just love the church so much. Like, that's what they're trying to do. When, when Aunt Charlotte, my seven-year-old, was younger, much younger, you know, she's, she'd fall a lot more. So she and, and Cannon, her younger brother, Aunt Charlotte would fall, and I would say, baby, Aunt Charlotte, are you okay? Okay, you're okay. Are you okay? You're okay. And then my son would just sort of like fall, you know. Ah, I'm okay too. It used to drive me nuts. We learn really early that we don't like it when only other people are the center of attention. She falls and gets attention, I'll fall and get attention. He gives money and gets attention, I'll give money and get attention. So Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira. What happens? They drop dead. Death in general tends to grab our attention. What would you do if you're watching a sort of a tense argument and then someone just like drop dead? What would you do after you changed your pants, of course, because you would have soiled them. I would have soiled them like, what's happening? This is not okay. I'm just going to go somewhere else. We read twice that there is great fear among them. God is really in our midst. So full disclosure, when I read a passage like this, I don't like it. I don't understand it on some levels. I find myself asking this question, did Ananias and Sapphira really have to die for this? Like, that seems a bit extreme. Is this fair? And I've had to kind of come to the conclusion that my problem with this passage is that Ananias and Sapphira's problem must hit home with me. I must see myself in them. Is it fair that they would die? I clearly don't feel like I have the moral high ground over them. My motives are not always perfectly in check. And I think the part of me, the part of us that might recoil, the idea that maybe they didn't deserve this, is the part of us, the same part of us, that needs to be reminded that the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth, is holy. He is perfect. And to mess with Him is dangerous. 
He's real. And I'm not convinced enough, apparently, of the degree of his holiness. His moral and righteous indignation when people mock his grace and his church. We're far worse than we think we are and probably have a little bit of Ananias and Sapphira in us. Maybe if you're like me, you're afraid of what you really deserve. I was telling some of you this not too long ago. I went to a, I went to a camp. I was Christian-ish when I was in high school, senior camp, and it was kind of a joke. But we sang kids' songs, and there was this song that we used to sing. It was, Give me your unconditional love, the kind of love I deserve, the kind I want to return. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And it wasn't until like years later, I was like, oh my goodness, they were teaching us to say, give me your unconditional love because I deserve it. We do not deserve it. And no Christian camp should ever, ever sing that. But sometimes it's right, is it not, to ask, what is it that I really deserve from God? We deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got. We deserve death. We deserve more. And here's the good news. Grace is not a paycheck. God does not give grace to people who deserve it. A friend of mine used to describe grace this way. He said, imagine, imagine you borrow your roommate's bike. You don't ask. You borrow it, right? You go down to Abu Java or wherever, and you come out and it's stolen. It's awkward. You go back to your apartment and you say, hey, I've got some awful news. I borrowed your bike without telling you and it got stolen. And what they do is they give you a big hug and they pull out their wallet and they say, here's money for a new bike. Go get yourself a bike. That's grace. That's the kind of grace we're talking about, right? It's, we've messed everything up. And Jesus says, I'm going to buy you a new life. You don't deserve it. Ananias and Sapphira rejected this grace. They live all around it. And for whatever reason, it doesn't sink into their hearts. While they hung out around Christians, they never let the gospel really grip them. What filled them instead were all the wrong things. They didn't grow in love for God and each other. They grew in love for money and approval from others. And yet, when great grace is at work in our lives, we become marked as people who are more generous than we would have been. Generous with our resources, whatever they may be. Which also means that instead of simply caring about the attention that we can get from others, we actually become the kind of people who are paying attention to the needs of others. How can this be? The mark of someone who's received great grace is that they become gracious themselves. Jesus says this in some way or another over and over again in the Gospels. So if you look at these Christian ideals and you think, okay, got it, be generous, care about others, that's what I'm going to do, check, 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 it'll wear you out. Your heart won't be changed and you might burn out. In 2 Corinthians 8, when St. Paul is trying to encourage believers, 
to be generous like they've said they were going to be generous. He doesn't say, just give your money to people who need it. What does he say? He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus was rich, and he got rid of everything. He sold everything and became poor so that you might become rich. We have a tendency to forget how much we need that grace. If we want to be gracious with others, we have to see how much God has been gracious with us. We have to see how much we need His grace. If the call to love others with our resources sounds like a burden, if it sounds tiring, if it sounds, oh, I don't know how I would ever do that, what that means is we've forgotten how needy we are. We've forgotten. And that's okay because it's my job to remind you and it's your job to remind each other. We're needy. We are broken. We need grace that is not a paycheck. We need someone to love us when we don't deserve it, and that love is going to change us. All of us long for praise from others, and the part of us that longs for that the most is the part that's forgotten that in Jesus Christ, God is already pleased with us. When the Father's approval melts your heart, you no longer want to do anything for the approval of others. The gospel says you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Not No works. There's no works that get you saved. There's no right living that gets you saved. Jesus died for you. It's what He did for you. It's not what you do for Him. Believe this, and God will give you Jesus. One day, there's literally going to be a day of judgment, and we're going to stand before Jesus. And He's not going to say, did you do enough for me? He's going to say, wow, everybody sins like crazy. These are the worst works I've ever seen. And His people are going to say, I know! (laughs) That's why we cling to your works. I have nothing in my works to offer you. And you've been gracious to me. That is the Christian hope. And if you want to be the kind of person that doesn't live for the approval of others, if you want to be the kind of person that actually becomes generous with your resources, whatever that may be, if you want to be the kind of person that actually starts to live for the glory of God and for the good of His people, remember the eternal riches and approval that Jesus has freely secured for you because of His work. Remember this. And Jesus will change the way you think about what others can offer you. He'll begin to show you ways that you have things to offer others. He'll make you the kind of person that wants to serve. Ananias and Sapphira thought that they needed more than Jesus, so they gave less than everything. You don't need more than Jesus. And you can trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have mixed motives for everything we do. And a lot of those motives have to do with our glory, our riches, and we're sorry. And we thank You that Jesus has never had a mixed motive in his life. 
deserving of all praise and glory, and he laid it all aside so that he might redeem people just like us for himself. And so we ask that you would give us the faith that we need to believe that and receive Jesus and follow him. Amen. Let's sing.